Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I'm going to move to some of the questions. I'm taking the questions in a bit of random order. Number one. The first question is that, can you give us five or six names of people who are masters of the sawaf and also of hadith or tafsir or recognized for both? What happened in terms of the level of mastery, uh, it's like me asking you, can you give me a cardiologist who was also a dermatologist? Can you give me the name of any dermatologist that was also an ophthalmologist? Permi Mamunga. So if you're only going to accept that dermatologist who is also an ophthalmologist or a cardiologist or with at least one other thing, Right? In the deen of Islam, it was the same thing. For example, are you going to do tanqeed on Imam Bukhari because he's never written a tafsir? Are we not going to accept Imam Bukhari because he has not uh, compiled a complete book of fiqh? Are we not going to accept Imam Bukhari because he didn't write a book on sirah? No, they were masters. They were specializing. Okay, good. This personally is a mechanism. Right? So it's difficult. But however, what I can do is tell you this people of hadith and tafsir and fiqh who were not masters of the sawaf, but they approved of the sawaf. Right? They were students of the sawaf, but they were not necessarily shaykhs of the sawaf. That is something I can give you. So number one is Imam al-Ghazali rahimahullah ta'ala. He was not a shaykh of the sawaf. He did not have murids. He did not take bayat. But he was a student and he was a huge, big alim. Known universally to have been one of the greatest ulama that this ummah has ever produced, and particularly an imam in kalam, in fiqh, in usul al fiqh, and one of the leading professors of the Madrasa Nizamiyah, which was the leading Islamic educational institution of his time. And he has spoken extremely positively about the sawaf in many of his works, namely Al Munkid Min al Dalala and Ihya Ulumuddin, both of which have been translated in English and both of which are sitting on my lap in some ways, in some form. Right? That is one person. Imam Malik Rimullah spoken very favorably towards the Sawaf. Ibn Hajar, Imam al Nawi, Jalaldin al Suyuti, all of these are scholars of Hadith and Fiqh who have all spoken very favorably to the Sawaf. Amlama uh, Ibn Abidin, the last great Hanafi Mujtahid, is 19th century Syria, has written Risala's uh, epistles, treaties in the favor of the Sawaf. So basically you have, uh, and I'm going to mention to you right now, Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah. I'm going to show you that shortly. Also two big ulama of hadith and fiqh that have spoken favorably. And I'm going to quote them directly. Spoken favorably about the sawaf. So we definitely have scholars of hadith, fiqh and tafsir who were students of the sawaf. But it's difficult for me to find you scholars of hadith, fiqh and tafsir who are masters of the sawaf. Give you another example. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. Rahimahullah Ta'ala went and sat and was a student of the Sufi Shaykh Imam Bishar Hafi. And once one of the students of Hadith of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal asked him, Ya Ustad, Ya Shaykh, you're such a big muhaddith, why do you go sit in the company of a ghair alim? Bishar Hafi was a ghair alim. And Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal Rahimahullah Ta'ala responded, Ana alimun bi kitabillah wa huwa alimun billah that I am an alim of the book of Allah and he is an alim of Allah that's why I sit with him Ana alimun bi kitabillah wa huwa alimun billah so that would be a separate presentation which I one maybe which should incorporate and, and I'm actually very happy at the question because the question is the questioner is asking me 
Can you show me the ulama of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah who have approved of the sawaf? I wasn't sure today, that's why I began by even trying to convince you of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. But now that we're on the same page, then to give you a presentation or statements of the great ulama of the past who have approved of the sawaf, here I'm just going to give you one Ibn Taymiyyah shortly. Right. And because he has normally been presented to you as somebody who opposes the sawaf, then you will be able to sort of understand that there were ulama who were for this. Second, are there any good English books refuting the aberrant views of Sufism? And that articulate in defense of the best English book is called Sufism and Sharia. Sufism and Sharia. It contains a translation of Sheikh Ahmad Suhindi, Rimalatallah's letters, and a 130-page introduction written by senior member of Jamaat Islami India. Allah Akbar. So this is a quite balanced person. Uh, and I think that is the best English book that you would be able to get. It's called Sufism and Sharia, published by the Islamic Foundation in Leicester, UK. Leicester spelled as Leicester, L-E-I-C-E-S-T-E-R, right? Islamic Foundation, for those of you who go to the UK, know it's a well-known Islamic institute in the United Kingdom, right? Number three, is Imam al-Ghazali relevant to Sufism? Yes. He's, yeah, I've heard that he supported the Sufism wholeheartedly. I have brought two of his entire books here and selections of a third book, but I didn't have time to teach you from it. In his book called Deliverance from Error, Al-Munkid Min Dalala, which is a spiritual autobiography, he mentions clearly and unequivocally that he views the path of the people of the soul to be the soundest and straightest and best of paths. In another book that he's written, which has been titled Ya Ayuhal Walad, which is a letter to his uh, beloved disciple, he has mentioned many things about the Sawaf in that letter as well. And that is also something that we teach uh, from. So both of those texts we normally teach in entirety. Uh, and obviously a third work of his, Ihya Ulumuddin, also uh, stresses different aspects and teaches different aspects of the Sawaf. And these books are all available in Urdu as well. In fact, a wonderful book available in Urdu. Uh, Sobir, your mother is here? Was it Minhajul Abidin? Right? So that book is also there. Tablighidin, another book by Imam Ghazali, also written, also been translated in Urdu. So you can get all of these books and you will be able to read Imam Ghazali's positions. Next question is that how can we determine the difference between nafil ibadat that are right and bidat that are wrong? So the simple criteria for that is the sharia. If you do any new nafal ibadah that is khilaf sharia that is a bidat that is wrong. If you start doing any new nafal ibadah and you think it is sunnah, wajib and farz, that is a bidat that is wrong. If you do a new nafal ibadah and you think that that is the only way to do that type of nafal ibadah, the only way to do dua or the only way to do zikr, then that is wrong. These are the ways that you would be able to tell that rather than being a permissible, acceptable, commendable, reward-earning nafil ibadah, new nafil ibadah, rather it is a bidah that is wrong. Examples of bidah that are wrong, such as thinking that the Prophet comes to your gathering on his birthday and celebrating his birthday and putting out a plate of biryani for him and not letting me put a surveillance camera and to show you who actually eats their biryani and thinking that the Prophet eats their biryani. These are examples of bidat. Pakistan is full of it. What you have to do is you have to be sensible. There is one group of people that say nothing is bidat. 
There's one group of people that says everything is bidat. Everything. Allah Akbar. You really have to be careful around them. Right? So you can't take that extreme position either. But the way to determine whether something is a bidat is the criteria that I mentioned to you. What is the difference? Next question. What is the difference between ilham and kash? They're almost synonymous. Kash refers to you getting an ilm that was previously unknown to you. And ilham refers to you getting an emotion or an inclination or an idea that was previously unknown to you. That is the best way I could try to explain this difference. But they are normally used, uh, often used synonymously. Interestingly, Ibn Taymiyyah writes, quote, Those who say that ilham does not count at all are wrong. And those who think that it is an approved way in the Sharia of knowing are also wrong. When the Salik, he uses this word, when the Salik, which is the student of the Sawaf, after taking all the clear arguments of the Sharia into consideration, fails to come to a judgment, then his ilham may be a proof for him, for action. Provided that he is muttaqi, he is a person of taqwa, and he has ikhlas in his niyat, he has the right intention. Then he adds, at times kashf is a stronger argument than a far-fetched qiyas, than a zayf hadith, than a weak opinion, and istishab, which is a fancy thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a tool of Islamic jurisprudence, presumption of continuity in English. Kash can be even stronger than that. Ibn Taymiyyah on Kash. So this is Ilham and Kash. Third question is, how is Baqa Sunnah? Baqa as we defined it, which means to remain in a state of complete remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala while being in an engagement with this world for His sake is Ayna Sunnah. That is exactly what the Prophet Amma Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha in a hadith in Muslim it describes about the Prophet that he was, his heart was always remembering Allah even while he was engaged in this world. So that is Baqa and again the verse of the Quran لا تلهيهم تجارة ملا بيعن أن ذكر الله that there are such people that neither trade or commerce distracts them from the remembrance of Allah i.e. their zikr of Allah is Baqi their zikr of Allah persists and remains and subsists even when they are engaging in this world. Next question is doing a deed which we are going to assume is amal saleh or an act of the deen without zikr or absent-mindedly a sin. It's not a sin. It is not a sin but it is a flaw. It is a failure in our part. So to pray salah without zikr itself is not sin. Praying such a salah is still ibadat. It's still fulfilling the farz. It's still discharging an obligation. But it's a flaw. It's a flawed worship. What is fana and baka? I thought I did that one. What is fana and baka? Um, let me explain to you a little bit more about fana and baka. Fana means that you have you are able to reach 100% remembrance of Allah by 100% disconnecting yourself from this world. And baka is that you are able to reach 100% remembrance of Allah while remaining 100% connected to this world. Again, fana is that you are able to reach 100% remembrance of Allah while being 0% connected to this world, i.e. entirely disconnected from the world. 
And baka means that you're able to maintain the 100% remembrance of Allah while being 100% engaged in this world. The journey from zero to fana was done by way of zikr. And I had mentioned to you this notion about zikr being light and the Qur'an being heavy. The Qur'an being heavy, I wasn't talking about in weight or in kilograms. I meant the zikr that is obtained by the Qur'an is heavier than the zikr that is obtained by zikr and dua. The remembrance that is required to be in a state of zikr doing tilawat of Qur'an is more intense than the remembrance that is required to be in a state of remembrance doing nafil zikr and nafil dua. So therefore a person is going to work themselves upward. A person is going to work themselves gradually. And that person again who is able to do zikr with their heart, right? And so when we ask another question that has come is that what is better, zikr of the tongue or of the heart or of both? Obviously of both is the best type of zikr. But if a person is unable to do both because they're able to make their tongue present but their heart is absent, then for them, for that moment in terms of as a remedial mechanism, zikr of the heart is what is best for them. Because they're focusing on zikr of the heart to fill the gap in their remembrance once they learn zikr of the heart. And Ibn Qayyim al-Jazi has mentioned something similar. Maybe I'll just read that for you right now. Where he talks about the remembrance and supplication. And he mentions... Okay, he mentions several things. Number one, he says, All ibadat prescribe the zikr of Allah and to achieve this zikr is its goal. And elsewhere he says, Zikr gives to the one who practices dua such strength that he is able to do what he does not have the strength to do without it. He is able to do by virtue of that zikr what he was not able to do without that zikr. Then he says that remembrance has greater merit than zikr has greater merit than dua. This is because zikr is the praise of Allah Almighty by the beauty of his attributes, his gifts and his names. While dua consists in the servant asking Allah for something that he needs. And what is this compared to that? Then he says that the recitation of Quran has more merit than zikr. So the same thing we told you that after zikr then comes Quran, then comes salah. And zikr has more merit than dua. Yet some situations may give what has less merit priority over what has more. And then he goes on and this is two pages to describe that. And in essence what I'm telling you. That even those nawafil have more merit than Qur'an. And Qur'an has more merit than zikr. But a person may be in such a situation where he must give priority to that which has less merit. Because that is the cure for his illness. That is his ability to get the merit of tilawat and of nafil is when he is able to or she is able to instill the remembrance of Allah Ta'ala in her heart. All of these were quotes from a book by Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah called Al-Wab al-Sayyib min al-Kalim al-Tayyib which has been translated by a group in Cambridge called the Islamic Text Society translated as Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah on the Invocation of God translated by a convert Abdurrahman Fitzgerald Abdurrahman Fitzgerald on fana and baka, now, uh, first of all, the question is that if 
to be 100% disconnected from the dunya, is that even allowed? Obviously not for the person who has any hukuk, hukuk al-ibad that they have to fulfill, but otherwise all of us we take breaks to go in a state of khalwat like itikaf, to whatever extent a person can do that, right? Maybe a person can disconnect and travel for the sake of the deen for a year, maybe a person can go away for, for a week, maybe a person can just try to disconnect for a few hours. But whenever that is, whenever they can do that 100% disconnect, if they can connect themselves exclusively with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This statement, another next question is the statement, don't be a faqih without being a Sufi, and don't be a Sufi without being a faqih. This has been attributed to Imam Malik, ta'ala, and said that that person who has the sawuf without fiqh is empty. That person who has fiqh without the sawuf is also empty. The only person who is kamal is the person who has both. And that is because the deen has both an outer and an inner understanding. And we need to understand all aspects of the deen. That is why the Prophet said in the hadith of Jibreel that the deen consists of iman, islam and ihsan, all three aspects. Next question, that what is naqis and kamil fana? These questions are in Urdu but I am just summarizing them in English. Now, and how can we distinguish? Kamil fana is that fana number one that does not in, lead a person to any belief or conclusion that is outside the Quran, Sunnah and Sharia. Number two, Kamil Fana is that Fana which is escaped, that is exited from, that a person makes it on to Baqa. For example, why did we call some of the Fanas that we did Naqis? Was because they, for example, Rabia Basriya, we called her Fana Naqis, not as a personal slander of her personality, but because it led her to sideline a belief that is important in the Quran that a person should desire Jannah and a person should fear Jahannam. So if that feeling was a result of her fana, then there are some nooks in her fana because the result and the product and the consequence of that fana is nakis. So the question is that iska ta'ayun kaun karega ke nakis fana kaun sahe or kamil fana kaun sahe iska ta'ayun kisi zaat ne karega koi shaks ne karega iska ta'ayun sharia karega aur ulama-e shariat karenge jis fana se koi bhi aqeeda nikle ya koi tasawwur aaye ya koi cheez zehn mein aaye jo shariat ke khilaf hai uska usse saaf zahir maloom ho jayega ki us fana ke andar nuqs aur jis fana mein kohi khilaf e shara na amar ho amal ho na soch ho na zehn ho na concept ho to wo fana hai kamil Now a little bit more on fana and baka before I move to the next question, and that is that. So uh, on another issue is I, I I didn't mention to you this complete process because I told you how the mashaykh bring you to fana, which is through zikr. How do they take you to baka? And the and another thing is that you know isn't this process dangerous, right? I mean, why would we want to if there are people like al obviously al halaj. And Ibn Arami, we would love, if we're humble, we're going to say they had more taqwa than us, they followed more sunnah than us, they had more ilm than us, and if they can also slip, then what hope is there for little old me on this path? Right? 
So first, the journey from Fana to Baka. The journey from Fana to Baka, and this is the understanding of Sheikh Amr Hindi, Taala, and I am a student of that tradition of the Sawaf. And that is, is that zikr, there's a second type of zikr which is khidmat of the deen, work of the deen, tajdeed of deen, ikamat of deen, and another type of zikr which is to do anything in this world according to the sharia and sunnah. So these two types of zikr is what brings a person from the journey from fana to baka. The first type of zikr which is remembrance of Allah, that brings a person from ghaflat to fana. The second and third type of zikr, again, which is tajid deen khidmat of deen work of the deen dawat deen in any and all different ways, and there are many ways to do khidmat and dawat and tajdeed of deen, that brings a person from fana to baka, and working and doing anything of this dunya, accordance with the sharia and sunnah, that is also zikr, that I'd mentioned to you earlier, and that second, that zikr also brings a person from fana into baka. Now the question remains that isn't there some danger? Like I told you, three or four people out of millions were made this mistake and this mistake was caught and expounded upon clearly by the Mashaikh of Tasawwuf. And yes, maybe that person who is trying to do zikr on their own, that is a bit dangerous, genuinely. But a person who is going to take a tutor and a teacher, and again that part is coming in a moment after the Q&A session, but that person who is going to take a tutor and a teacher, as long as they know they have a teacher and a tutor to guide them, they know they won't go astray. For example, if I decide to go to a jungle in South America, navigating that jungle dangerous? Oh yes, very dangerous. Right? Chances I will be able to find my way, very unlikely. If I hire an expert guide to take me to the jungle, danger is finished. I have a guide now. As long as I stay with the guide, as long as I listen to the guide, as long as I follow the guide, he will take me out of the maze. I'm set. Now I want to address another thing as well about Fana and Baka that I was not able to uh, mention yet. And that is the Sahaba Karam. And I want to read this out to you. This is an amazing, another piece by Sheikh Ahmed Sir Hindi, Rimullahu Ta'ala. And he explains to us, and this is a bit of a difficult concept, and I had initially skipped it, but now I feel... Don't ask how I feel or why I feel. <laughs> I feel that I should share this with you. And that is the question that the Sahaba Kiram, they didn't go through this Fanan Baka. Nobody asked this question. Sheikh Amr Hindi Nantai asked this question. This is not your question. This is his question. This is his question that none of the Sahaba Kiram had to go through these states of Fana and Baka. And there are other terms, Kurb and Jazba and uh, etc., all of these things, right? So he says that the nearness, the qurb, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and remember I talked to you about this concept of wilayat and nabuat, right? So he takes this even one step further. So I'm going to read it first to you and then I'll explain it to you. He writes, the qurb, and this is in his volume 1 of his maktubat, letter number 313. The qurb to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that a person attains through fana and baka suluk, which is tasawwuf, is kurbi wilayat. It is the kurb to Allah that the awliya of this ummah attain. But the kurb, on the other hand, the kurb, the nearness to Allah, which the sahaba attained in the sohbah of the Prophet was kurbi nabuat. And they received this kurb through the Prophet and by following him. And in this kurb there is neither fana, nor baka, nor tasawwuf or suluk. 
And it is many times superior to Qurb Wilayat. It is the Asl Qurb, whereas the second Qurb is a shadow of that. The difference between them is great. People do not generally know this truth, and in this regard the scholars are no better than the common folk. Then he says, however, if one wants to achieve the Qurb Nubuat by way of Qurb Wilayat, he cannot avoid Fana, Baka, and Tasawuf and Saluk because they are the basic principles of the way of Wilayat. But if one does not take this way and follows the path of Qurb Nubuat, then one does not need Fana, Baka, Tasawuf and Saluk. The companions of the Prophet, the Sahaba Ikram, have followed the way of Qurb Nubuat, which has nothing to do with Fana, Baka, Jazba and Saluk. What does this mean? Alright? Let me explain this to you. Qurbi Walayat and Qurbi Nabuat. Qurbi Nabuat, he's using this term to refer to the proximity, the Qurb that the Anbiya had with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now understand this again. The Sifat of the Anbiya exists in them in an unparalleled way. We cannot attain it at the same level. But there's still the mark for us. There's still the mark for us. So rather, the, a better way to explain this, since you get, you make it, it's the qurb of the wilayat of the anbiya, as opposed to the qurb of the wilayat of the awliya. This is a more precise way to explain this. One thing is the qurb of the wilayat of the anbiya, and the second is the qurb of the wilayat of the awliya. And elsewhere, Sheikh Amitani puts in between the two, the qurb of the wilayat of the malaika. Abaji kare ki bas karo, bas karo. Tuba, tuba, tuba. Kari Quran Hadith hameh padao. Haan? Ye Quran Hadith mein aapko padao. Aap nahi samajhte. Mis sunnati rasool aapko padao. Wilayat Quran mein aaya ya nahi? Malayka Quran mein aaya ya nahi? Anbiya Quran mein aaya ya nahi? Ye hai kya chiz hai? Ullah maan chizun ko samajhte hai. Why do you think those tafsirs are 15-20 volumes? How many times do I have to tell you? Baal, I've crossed the line a little bit. Maybe it's a little bit low. What Sheikh Ahmed Srinath is saying, and the reason I'm telling you this is because another letter, so I won't read that. But he says that he feels the need of the time is to bring people on tasawwuf, on the path of the wilayat of the anbiya, and no longer on the path of the wilayat of the awliya. And that is the line that I am from. So he's not trying to bring people to Fanan Baka. But he says it may happen as a part of zikr. But Sheikh Amr Hindi stresses ittibai sunnah. He says following the sunnah is the greatest type of mujahida. That is why you will, feel, feel, you will find that the people who are from his line do a lot of amal on sunnah. They will wear an imama and they will always wear white, right? And it's interesting, all the muhaddisin all wore imamas. Imam Bukhari, Muslim, Timizi, Awadud, Nisai. Ibn Majib and Hajj Skalani, Imam Nawi, you read all of their biographies, you will mention, find mention of their clothes and mention of their turbans. But for some reason, the quote-unquote Al-Hadith scholars don't wear imama. I've never understood that. Allah they must have some reason, they must have some view uh, due to which they've done ikhtilaf with the muhaddisin on this issue. The ijmaad, the amal of the muhaddisin in following the sunnah. So, the Sahaba Karam, what does it mean? They got the Qurb of the Wilayat of Nabuat. Just by virtue of the Sohbah of the Prophet Wasallam. remember, remember, what was Fana? Fana was designed to disconnect you from this world. That was done through Sohbah for them. 
They didn't need that process of zikr to take them to fana because just by being sahib rasul, they were totally disconnected from love for the world or enslavement to the nafs or enslavement to the dunya or all of the things that I told you about that are illnesses in us that we need this process of zikr to sever our ties to ghairullah and to train us to connect ourselves to Allah. But the sahaba karam, their sobat with the Prophet was the single and the most powerful thing that severed and cut their ties from all of Ghairullah. Then from Fana to Baqa, I told you, was that way to do khidmat of the deen. So who in the world did more khidmat of the deen than the Sahaba Kiram? Radiallahu ta'ala whether in Badr or Uhud or Hudaybi or anywhere in their life, anywhere they went. So just by virtue of being Sahaba, they already made it to Fana and made it to Baqa without having to go through these processes that were developed later by the awliya of this ummah to guide later people to the same end. Next question. Uh, following the Bashaykh Ahmed means by following the path of the wilayat of the anbiya. It's kind of a bit of a mix. What he's saying is that don't. there's no need now for those you know, fasting every day of the year or praying 1,000 rakats of nafil every day. What you should do is try to follow the sunnah mizaj, the sunnah tabiyat, the sunnah amount of eating, the sunnah amount of sleeping, the sunnah amount of fasting, use the masnoon du'as, use the zikr iskar, mention the sunnah, plus do some nafil ibadat, which, is, which I'll tell you in the end, right? Because many of you said that question, that what in one questioner said, and what in your view is a time attested and proven way of doing zikr. So I will share that with you. That is the teaching of Sheikh Ahmed Sir Hindirimullah which is a little bit of nafil ibadat the day. Maybe one hour. Could even be less, starting from 20 to 30 minutes a day to one to two hours a day. That's it. He says, don't go beyond that. And then beyond that, you should do khidmat of deen, work of deen, dawat of deen, tajdeed of deen, iqamat of deen in ourselves, in our families, communities, to whatever extent we are able. And he says that that, he calls that the path of nabuat because he says that that is the work of the anbiya. Why did the Prophet prefer Baqa? For the same reason that the Prophet did not remain in Sajda and enjoy the lutf of the qurb of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but rather made himself rise and work amongst the people and do work of the deen is the same reason why people who want to have his wilayat must do the same thing and must spend some time in their nafal ibadat like the Prophet did must give the bulk of their life however to the khidmat of the deen. And if they do that, they will be, do, be his truest followers because they will do, be doing what he did. And they will be trying to spread and revive the teachings of his prophecy. And they will thereby also get the qurb of the wilayat of Anbiya. So anyway, like I told you, when these mashayikh go in very, very depth, and it's true in tafsir and hadith, if I was to open up tafsir and the big books with you and start reading them out to you, there's extremely in-depth discussions, Right? Extremely in-depth discussions. Next question, that when you have a Kati Dalil, then what role is a Zanni Dalil? And why should you do Amal on the Zanni? So we should understand that if you have both types of Dalil available to you, Kati and Zanni, then there's no doubt that obviously you would follow the Kati Dalil. But when there is no Kati Dalil on something, then you have to follow a Zanni Dalil. For example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Qur'an al-Kareem, and I tell it to you again, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amunu dhkurullaha dhikran kathira. There is no kati dalil that tells you how to do zikr al-kathir. 
If a person says that I don't have zikr in my heart, there is no kati dalil that tells you how to do, how to bring that zikr back in your heart in salah. If a person says that I have this illness of ghaflat, there is no kati dalil that tells you how to cure that ghaflat. The only choices available to you are zanni. If there's a person who says that no, I read Quran and I make the sunnah du'as and sunnah zikr and that's enough for me and that's cured me and I have complete remembrance of Allah and I have this fana and I do khidmat of deen and I remember Allah in every rakat and every sajda of every namaz so we'll say that's great. We're very happy. Every doctor, you go to a doctor and say, look, I'm healthy. He says, great, go. I'm, I'm sitting here to deal with the people who are sick. I'm really happy that you're healthy. And you say, no, no, look at me. I'm healthy and I didn't take any medicine. Well, so great, double shabash. Right? But you should but if that person says, you know, why are you care why are these why can't these people become like me? I said they can't become like you because they're sick. Because they're sick I have to write them a prescription. Because they're sick, they're going to have to fill that prescription. Because they're sick, they're going to have to take the medicine. If you step back and let them do that, they'll also become like you and become healthy. So if there's a person who says that I don't have any of these illnesses, I don't have this issue, I have a Kalbun Salim, I am an Abdul Munib, I have a Kalbun Munib, these are Quranic terms. And you have to, it's not arrogant, you have to make yourself according to the Quran. Either you say you are, then we say we, then we say you don't need methods to do that, or you say you're not, and then you'll have to ask what is the method and way for me to become like that. And there is no kati method and way to become like that. Then another question is that if we allow for the concept of new nafil ibadat or sunnat hasana, the person has written bidat hasana, but the words in the hadith I recited to you from Sahih Muslim was sunnat hasana, sunnat hasana, right? Then دین میں بگار کا امکان ہے دین میں بگار کا کبھی امکان نہیں ہو سکتا اگر آپ صحیح حدیث پر عمل کریں صحیح مسلم میں کہا کہ that you can innovate a sunnat hasana بگار نہیں ہو سکتا because the deen has its found its permanence the bulk of the deen is tafsilan given by Allah the bulk of the deen is kati the bulk of the deen is universal the ground forces of the deen are the faraiz and the wajibat now you tell me that every imam in Masjid al-Haram, there are four imams now, in every Ramadan, after end of every taraweeh, in every kunut, they have been given the ikhtiyar to make whatever dua they want. Are you going to tell me that ismi deen ka bigar ho gaya? Taraweeh ka nazam or zabt mein bigar ho gaya? Makkah mukarram mein bigar ho gaya? Aapne kyun ikhtiyar di unko? Har bandha, har raad, apni dua kar raha hai. Imam so this, agli din, khud bhi mukhlif dua karta hai. Tiso ko, tiso alagi dua ho rahe and if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has left it open, who are we to say that actually it's an itraz in Allah? That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala aapne jo ijmaalan I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I don't know why Allah Subhanahu did that. Sometimes I also think that wouldn't it really have just been simple that Allah Subhanahu laid it out clear, one monolithic code, crystal clear, no dispute, no no room, no room for interpretation, no room for differences of opinion. But Allah Taala didn't do that. 
Allah Ta'ala didn't do that. The Sahaba Ikram have differences in legal opinion. And not to mention other differences as well. Take I mean, we don't talk about it because it's so sensitive, but does somebody want to do a nitraz on the Prophet that why didn't he just say Abu Bakr should be the Khalifa after me? Why didn't he just say it? If he had said it, right, a lot of things would have been much easier, right? The 20% of the people running around calling themselves Shia wouldn't exist. But that's the way Allah Ta'ala works. Allah Ta'ala says in Quran that this Quran will be a source of guidance from you. Then will also be a source of people going astray. Why did Allah Ta'ala put that potential in the Quran? Allah Alam, I don't know. Why did Allah Ta'ala put some verses in the Quran that you could squeeze out a meaning that even supports Qadiyani? Why? I don't know. But Allah Ta'ala did that. And I'm a servant and slave and I submit to the hikmat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All I know is that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is given an inch, I have to keep it an inch. I can't take the inch away. If people take the inch and make it a mile, I still can't take the inch away because the inch was given by Allah. That's what people want to do and say, they can if Allah has given an inch, the example I give of this is create mile-high borders on the inch. That is what I say. You can't get rid of the inch. This is a bit of a reaction by Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Qayyim al-Jaziyah due to the very real bidat that were going on. And this reaction of some people in Pakistan due to the very real bidat that go on in this country now. But you cannot take back what Allah has given. You have to protect that. That is the real khidmat of the deen. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the way you reveal the deen, the scope and flexibility that you give, I'm going to fight to make sure the deen stays the way you wanted it. I'm not going to be upset that people are abusing that scope and ending up in false practices and I'm not going to react by taking away the scope that you have given because how can I take away what you have given? You are Allah and I'm your servant and slave. So if Allah Ta'ala has given an inch, yes, don't give a mile. If Allah Ta'ala has given an inch and people are taking a mile, don't close the door. You can't. It's not your right. Try to protect that inch. Try to create borders around that inch. Try to make sure nobody goes beyond that inch. But you can't take it back. You can't take it back. Next question is that Imam Ghazali said certain things in his books that were according to his times. And what is your opinion on them? Such as that Imam Ghazali said that you shouldn't get married. Imam Ghazali did not say that you shouldn't get married. In his Kitab al-Nakah he has said that for that person who doesn't feel the desire to get married, few such people alive today, but that person who doesn't feel the desire to get married, it was the position of Imam Shafi that nafil ibadah is abzil to nikah and therefore if a person doesn't feel the need to do nikah he doesn't need to get married Imam al-Nawwi never got married Imam al-Nifa says that no nikah is sunnah and is abzil to nafil ibadah and differences of scholars and if there is something that he said that was according to his time then my position on that again is like I told you that is my understanding of why Allah Ta'ala left these things open. Was that because the ulama of the sawwuf will have to make this according to the time. Like I told you, remember I told you in the beginning that people today are too weak to do these mujahidat. You tell a person to fast every other day with the bed jangah. And even their ibadat and nafil ibadat and Quran and talawat and all the things they were doing, they won't be able to do it. 
So definitely we do have to look at that, that there may be some things, especially in the terms of mujahida and the terms of zikr, that earlier mashaykh may have been saying according to their times or according to the specific students that they were addressing, and we need to reconsider whether we need to do exactly the same zikr ourselves. That is why it is always better and emphasized in this tradition of the Tasawwuf to have a living sheikh. Not to make our sheikh a book or make a sheikh our, uh, our sheikh somebody who has passed away, but make a sheikh somebody who understands the time we live in, understands our society, understands us, understands that I have in-laws, right? Understands all the different issues that I may have be having, right? Understands my kids, understands the challenges faced by secularism, by modernity, by liberalism, right? And basically understands all the fitness that I am currently ensnared in that are risking my deen so that he can take me out of them. Then another question is that, you know, there are some Sufis, I call them pseudo-Sufis. The example here is that some person came apparently here to talk about Sufism and he was asked about something and he said that don't follow us, we are for the West. In other words, we've designed a Sufism, I'm assuming the questioner means that we've designed a Sufism for the West. You have to be careful of that stuff. There's all types of pseudo-Sufis there. I'll just tell you, in this world, crazy things are being done in the name of Islam. If crazy things are being done in the name of Islam, then certainly crazy things will be done in the name of Naqshbandi or Qadri or Hanafi or Shafi. These are, if you can do crazy things in the name of Islam, then what do any of these other labels mean to a person? So if anybody, and there's no changing the Sharia for the West, right? And there are all types of New Age spirituality groups who invoke the term Sufism and teach all types of things that are not acceptable in the Sharia. And some of that is being done to make it more palatable to the West. I'll also tell you that sometimes people in Pakistan, alhamdulillah, have a very good sensitivity towards bidat, but you cannot blame a person for what happens. For example, people think that Judata Dirbar, even this word is not correct, but as it is known, Data Dirbar, the things that are happening on is a proof that Sheikh Ali al Hajwari, there must have been something wrong with him. This is the reason people use it here. That there must have been something wrong with him, and that's why Allah Ta'ala has not kept his grave free of bidat. If you want to use that logic, watch where that logic will take you. Something is wrong with Allah. Why? Because all of you know in Dora Jahiliya before the Prophet what was happening in the Kaaba? In the Kaaba there were false idols. In the Kaaba the Kuffar of Quraysh were doing tawaf naked around the Kaaba. Are you going to do it raz on Allah? That there's something wrong with Allah Taala. that in the Kaaba idolatry is going on? So if Kaaba has not been kept safe from idolatry, shirk and bidat throughout centuries, then what do you think about Dat and Dharmar? How in the world can you accuse people do that? And more specifically, that he's not responsible for that in any way. He's not responsible for that. He's no more responsible for what happens in, around and above and next to his grave then, I mean, that's like, again, like I told you, holding Allah sponsor responsible for the shirk that took place in the Kama for centuries. That's nonsensical. How could we ever think like that? So no place is sacred. Even that's a lesson for us. That even Allah Ta'ala did not intervene to protect His Kama from shirk. It happened. 
So why is he going to intervene? If it was a sign that this person was accepted, Allah would have intervened. Allah would have made sure that Vaki Makbul ban dete. To Allah Taala kabi aise karne nahi dete. Oh, Kaaba Vaki Makbul jaga hai. Allah Taala didn't intervene there either. Said so the arguments that people use, you know, it's just it, it's flawed. It's flawed reasoning. Last question on the Q&A's and then there are a couple of questions that are going to come up actually in the course of the topics. Is uh, these terms Qutub and Abdal. These terms have been mentioned by the Possum and Zayf Hadith. I didn't bring those Hadith with me because I normally don't discuss that topic. Uh, they are Zayf Hadith. Not Mawzu Hadith. Zayf Hadith. What is a Zayf Hadith? Again, a Zayf Hadith. Let me give you a way to understand Zayf Hadith. A Zayf Hadith is a Sahih Hadith in every single respect except one narrator in it was critiqued by certain Hadith scholars. That's how you should understand what a Zayf Hadith is. Zayf Hadith is a hundred minus one. Zayf Hadith is a Hadith that is a 100% Sahih Hadith except for the fact that one narrator in its chain has been critiqued by at least some Hadith scholars. That narrator's reliability, that narrator's memory, uh, can be different things. Right? So there are some Zayf hadith that have mentioned Qutb and Abdal. When I did the workshop on hadith, which is a whole day workshop, which I cannot repeat now, I explained the role and the use of Zayf hadith in the deen of Islam. Zayf hadith can be used in the deen of Islam, but they are not a definitive source of proof. So whether Qutb, let me explain what those hadiths say, they talk about that there's a certain level of awliya. That itself is not problematic because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Quran that the people of Iman are in darajat. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself has mentioned so many categories in the Quran. Awliya, ulama, siddiqeen, sadiqeen, salihin, muhsineen, right? These are categories of the mu'mineen. So whether the, the existence of a subcategory is not really against the spirit of the Quran, and the Hadith suggests that amongst the awliya, there are certain senior awliya that are known as kutub and abdal and ghos and these are different terms that are used. Allahu Akbar. Maybe there are some people whose wilayat is even greater than the rest of the awliya, right? Uh, and there are even some Hadith that say that there are always going to be 40 abdal in Sham and Syria and there are going to be so many levels of walis in Yemen and I'm not even really remembering all of the details of those Hadith. Allahu Alam, right? Whether there are 40 such wellies in Sham or not is not a, really an issue for us. The question is, can we make ourselves in this group that Allah SWT has mentioned in the Quran? That's our job, right? But, let me correct some misconceptions. Some people say that the Qutub and the Abdal, let me show you the misconceptions. And maybe that's what the questioner was asking. That some people in Pakistan have this theory that the Prophet holds a spiritual majlis in his Rosa every night and all the Qutubs and Abdals and Ghosas get together and they plan the whole daily activities of the world. That's not happening. That's incorrect belief. But there's no mention of anything like that in the Zayf Hadith. Right? So, sometimes, or sometimes you may find a group that says that our Shaykh is the Abdal, you know, of the, whatever, of the, of the Zamana. And therefore, XYZ, Right? So there are some, there are maybe people who incorrectly invoke these terms, right? Uh, Allah, Allah knows best His servants. Just like Khizr. 
Khizr was a hidden secret. He was a wali of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Maybe he was a kutub of his time. Allahu alam. Right? He was something special. Right? Some person who got direct ilham from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he was doing things that were even outside the sharia of its time. And the story of Khizr salam has been commented on extensively in the books of tafsir. Because normally, like I told you, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not intervene. So if there is a son who is going to you know, destroy the iman of his parents, so what? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala lets that happen. But for some reason, for that particular son, Allah ta'ala sent this particular special servant of his, Khizr salam, and told him to kill that young man. All of you, I'm assuming, are familiar with the story of Surah Kaf, right? Why? Allahu alam. That's not really the norm. Allah Ta'ala doesn't normally operate like that. Allahu alam. Something special and something unique is definitely going on. Now whether we want to try and say that Khizr salam was a Qutub or a Dal or a Ghos or... There's another word also I can't remember. The fourth word. Some of you know. Ah, the Imtad. Amtad. Oh, I can't remember. Allah right? Allah Ta'ala, clearly from that story we know that Allah Ta'ala may have special servants, right? Khizr could also be alone. There's no Tati Dalil that says Khizr was alone. There's no Dalil on that either. Absence of proof is not a proof in Sharia. So there's a possibility that there are other such servants like that. Maybe not at that level, maybe at some lower level. Allahu Alam. Allahu Alam. This much we know that we're not responsible to know these things or understand these things and we won't be asked about these things on the Day of Judgment. Alright? So that is the best we could do for these questions and answers.